0: You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Dear listeners, this week we are joined by Jeffrey J. Smith. He's the author of Perfect Timing, a uh, new sci-fi novel that uh, presents a utopian view of the world so in a Uh, a a genre where so many negatives uh, are are pronounced, it's great to have a refreshing take in the sci-fi genre. But uh, before we get into that, Jeffrey was the co-founder of the Green Party of San Diego, then of California, then of the US. So he's been involved in the environmental ecological movement for a long, long time. He's initiated bills in uh, Oregon, Uh, He's testified before the Russian Duma Tax Committee and been the editor of the Progress Report, the Georgia News, and the quarterly geonomist a term that uh, he created. So, uh, Jeff, great to have you back on the show. Uh, Can you put on your number one movie trailer voiceover and give us a synopsis of your book?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Okay. So it's about somebody from our time who accidentally gets up into the future. The future has affected a chronoscope that allows them to look through time. So they're very curious to understand how they ever evolved to their present paradise from our time, which is so far away from being a paradise. We want to figure out how that transition took place. So they're looking at our time some respectable bears and the chronoscope accidentally misfires and extracts from our time into the future. And so that they do not disrupt the space-time continuum, they have to send that person directly back to the moment he left. And at the moment he left, he'd walk in on a cat burglar and there were some bullets flying If he goes back to that exact second, he could be killed. But they were looking at him because they suspect he could have been the person who put society on this trajectory towards paradise.
0: So, Jeff, how did you get interested in time travel and what sort of research process did you go through there?
1: I I think people can understand proposals if they can see them in action. And there are a few real real-world examples, but they're smaller at scale. I wanted to scale it up, and it's not possible to do in reality in the present, so it has to take place in the future. That's what got me interested in time travel. I've always been interested in hard science, and as you probably know, there are physicists who believe in time travel, and two of the most famous ones ever had uh, which way it's going to be proven in the future. And, um, so I don't know if it's possible or not, but it is a staple of sci fi. And you can find a lot of, um, utopian and dystopian stories in sci fi. So it's a perfect genre for what I was trying to do. Stephen uh, Hawking is one of those citizens who, who bet whether time travel was possible or not, he, he bet that it was. His buddy, whose name I can't remember, doesn't want to bet against him. So anyway, it's some big names who, who think it's possible.
0: There certainly are. And uh, so, so many listeners, I, I dare say, to this radio show would love to be able to go back in time and uh, buy up lots of land and then uh, use that money for good things. But, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the challenges you've taken uh, is to, through your life's work, is to try and make economics more interesting for the everyday person. Uh, And through that, you've been an editor of all sorts of journals and magazines. Uh, what led you to uh, tying this uh, renegade economist type story into a, um, a sci fi novel?
1: Well, like I say, there, there is a, a legacy, a tradition for trying this kind of stuff. Like Aldous Huxley, a British novelist, who was a supporter of what I call the genomic system, and he said if he had heard of it soon enough, would have made a a solution for Brave New World. But he he didn't know about it until he's famous for Brave New World and um, it's a dystopia. He did write a a utopian novel called Island, much different from the movies, recent movies by that title. And he did a great job. It wasn't nearly as popular as Brave New World, but it, it showed what can be done with fiction and with using fiction to raise awareness. So people people like to have fun. This guy Henry George, he said people uh, always choose the least effort. And fun is less effort than work. So people choose what they'd like to do over what they don't like to do. And they like to be entertained. They like to hear stories, like the Steve stories. And they can learn some stories. Look at the movie Gandhi and what he did for the peace movement. And... Um, other examples, uh, mainly from American history that I could think of, but for an Australian audience, I'm not sure. So I wanted to give it a shot. Nobody else was plan to do it, and it needed to get done, so I sat down and did it.
0: It's like an ideology in science fiction, isn't it, of uh, being a Malthusian, and thinking that that's uh, yeah, right. the biggest problem, if unless yeah. you mention population, unless you mention uh, peak oil, that's the big problem. Is nothing much to do with uh, what we're concerned with, peak monopoly. Yeah, <laughs> that's one hundred percent
1: right. Hey, did you ever uh, come across um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I think it was. Oh, yeah, it yeah. Was a sequel. So I was writing in that vein, kind of light-hearted, and um, and they, you know, they had science in there, hard science, the probability drives stuff. But um, so I, I had hard science and soft science, if you will, in in mine. But um, I think people who like Hitchhiker's Guide would like this because it's equally funny, I hope, but also um, irreverent and not dystopian. And so there's got to be some sci-fi fans who
0: would like to see things work out. Yeah, well, you got some great reviews on uh, goodreads.com.au, I think it is. So uh, fantastic work. Yes, well, when you read books uh, by Neil Stevenson, uh, one of the leading sci-fi authors uh, of such uh, masterpieces as Seven E's or Snow Crash... You almost uh, pull your hair out at just how negative it is in this dystopian view that uh, everything's falling apart and there's really no alternatives uh, but to leave this planet. And uh, I've been uh, screaming at my Kindle going, please, can someone uh, write a, a positive twist solutions-based sci-fi novel? And that sounds like what you've done here.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, which, which sort of bugs me about sci-fi. They have the technology progressing, evolving, but they don't have human society and custom and law moving forward at equivalent pace. But if you look at at human history, every time there's a big technological leap, there's a big leap in society too. So it's really not all that logical to to leave out our, our kind of contribution. Uh, a better way of seeing how it's along some very deep, structural, intractable, so far problems. And sci-fi should really have the imagination to incorporate these changes.
0: Yeah, well, that's an important point to make, that it's not just technology, but it's the social functions of how we organize society. And so what are some of these uh, major developments that you were... Uh, seeing your character Crick uh, bring t- to this, uh, this story?
1: Well, one thing, of course, is, is what's happening now, and that is the demand for labor is going down, even the demand for well-educated labor is going down. And if that is not addressed, uh, it's not going to be a happy situation for many people. But if it is addressed, and there can be tons of free time, and in that free time, people could be as they were before when they had lots of free time. It's not based on technology, it's based on slavery. But you had the golden age of Athens, of Greece. You had the golden age of um, Venice and Florence, of, of Italy. And um, a lot of these times when you've had these renaissances and these outbursts of science and art, it's been because... Of free time for talented, intelligent people. So, if the whole society is liberated, just think of all the ideas and changes that can move forward. You could have miracle medicine, which is in the novel, you could have anti gravity transportation, which is in the novel, you can have gene manipulation so you don't have to slow down a forest. But you can reprogram trees to grow into houses. And, um, the current fads of, of, uh, tattoos and piercings that could become incorporating animal features into a human body. So you could see as good as a hawk, or you could smell as good as a dog, or hear as good as a bat, or anything you wanted to do. All the frontiers here, you know, today would, would just be, just drop, just just fall to the ground. It's the sky is the limit, imagination is
0: the limit. It really is incredible what scientists uh, are up to. And when you think that the tax incentives are going at the opposite end towards property speculation, which uh, in turn makes life harder for uh, the creatives, the artisans out there to have that spare time to to think creatively. Uh, How much uh, better would the world be if we could give some of these uh, geniuses (coughs) some sort of uh, share of uh, the surplus, uh, this naturally rising value of the earth, so that they could engage with a more risque nature rather than being commercially tied to uh, dealing with uh, monthly rental payments. (laughs)
1: You know, um, one thing that always blows my mind is that more talent fails than succeeds. I have friends who are beautiful composers of music. Nobody's going to ever be able to hear. Um, Guys who are too shy to go out in the public and solve these mathematical puzzles. And I'm sure everybody knows people like that, just wasted talent. And society does not get the benefit from them, this current society. But if we had a society that was more of a community in which we shared our surplus, our socially generated values, which is the value of land and resources, it would liberate everybody. It would be a life of leisure and song and scientific inquiry and progress. It's it's what we're here for. Even life really shouldn't be being so miserable and suffering. We have the solutions right here at our fingertips. We just have to figure out a way to get them better known. And so that's why I tried this novel strategy.
0: You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Kyle Fitzgerald. And this week we have the author of Perfect Timing, a gripping new sci-fi book that you can get on Kindle. And we're joined by Jeff Smith, And Jeff, this question of uh, social evolution, uh, how is the the political process resolved in your book? It's the big issue of The Times, really, uh, alongside inequality, rent-seeking, and climate change is corruption. uh, What does a utopian future uh, look like in terms of the political process?
1: Well, politics today has been mainly an exercise and giving up rent among insiders, rent of all kinds, like your great Austin Phil Anderson, the way he talked about rent. And um, so, if rent is no longer this enticement, no longer this low hanging fruit for the more grasping and conniving among us, they have no reason to go into politics. So, if you can have a genomic system, you can lock the hood on the economy. And if there's nothing to haggle over in the legislature, it's, it's not going to attract the hagglers. Politics would give her away as, as much as uh, economic policy becomes fair and, and firm and permanent. So politics would be mainly yeah, a pastime. It'd be like... Um, as it is in a small town, people just get together and chat. It's not that big of a deal. It's more fun than anything. And um, in this future, you don't have a powerful political system. You don't have police because there's no crime. You don't have military because there's no war. But so there's just a bare remnant of the state. And as I say, it's, it's more like um, a, dis- a discussion club. So all of the left-right stuff is just way in the past in this particular future of geotopia
0: Well, let's hope we can all get there soon because uh, I wonder how the human psyche would address that. We all have uh, this uh, dark and light uh, mood to our uh, approach to life depending on how well we've slept and eaten and uh, been treated. How do you uh, deal with that in the book?
1: Well, uh, when I went to university, I got a degree in linguistics and a minor in anthropology. And I use a lot of what i learned about different hunter-gatherer tribes in this future. And in in some of them, um, the genders are very balanced. It it, it was a very healthy outcome in that societies were physically healthier. so, so that that takes place in this particular future, and um, to address most of the, let's say, the environmental problems, which are near and dear to my heart, there's no problem that you oppose that you don't pay for through your taxes, which become subsidies, which go to the polluters and the bleeders, the polluters. So, if we weren't doing that even today, we, we could stop things like uh, climate change and so forth. Of course, it can't stop overnight. It has to get worse before it's going to get better. But it's important for us to see the role of, of subsidies, the role of politics. I just saw an article recently that tallied up the amount of government money that oil companies get around the world. You the trillions of dollars every year. And we we just can't fight that politically. We have to fight it economically. And by that, I mean, we have to redirect the surplus away from that 1% to everybody. And we could use any number of means to collect it. Like um, Singapore has a land tax, and Hong Kong has a land lease. And so, any mechanism, fiscal mechanism like that, is fine to use. And the bigger the better, get all the rents and, and share them with everybody. So that would infuse this current system, this partnership of the state, because there wouldn't be a wherewithal for them. It'd be going to everybody else instead. Imagine it must be implemented gradually. You know, that's quite feasible, too. It's gradually change the rates and shifts the tax base and... Um, do what Alaska does and pay do it again and just increase it every year. It's all it's all feasible. Um all feasible politically and uh, legislatively. But to make it um, acceptable, that's the issue. it, it has to be I, I think there has to be a movement. There has to be a critical mass. There has to be popular support and hence again back to popular media. and telling stories. People don't argue with stories. I enjoy them, or they don't. And so um, I just tried to create an enjoyable story, a comedy, and it, has, um, it features young people as the leads, and a lot of imagination in the sense of makeovers, and the future society, and the future architecture, and there's a lot of eye candy, and a lot
0: of funny, awkward moments. Mm, generational clashes. Well, generational clashes. We're going to see uh, more and more of that, aren't we, uh, as uh, time rolls on? But uh, a, point, <laughs> a point I'm interested in is uh, <laughs> your perspective that uh, we need to share this surplus. And the mechanism for doing that is... Uh, something that's always up for debate. Uh, how are you proposing that this, uh, the naturally rising value of location, location, and other natural monopolies is uh, distributed amongst the community?
1: I, I have found Singapore to be a pretty good real world example. They have a land tax. You could have a land tax, land use, land use fee, land use fee, land lease, land lease like in Hong Kong and collect all the locational value, and bad for other resources, too, resources in the ground like oil, resources above the ground like the airwaves, and um, you would end up with a huge, huge percentage of the GDP. I don't think most people would believe how big it is, because most people think in terms of left and right, labor and capital, and work and unemployment, and et cetera, et cetera but the greatest flow within the economy is rent and um, public revenue, and that could yield an enormous dividend. Like they pay in Alaska, like they pay in Singapore. It amazes me that Singapore is not better known. I mean, it's rated as one of the best city-states on the planet, along with Hong Kong, but most people don't know that it's so efficient uh, government-wise that they run a surplus and they pay their citizens a dividend. And all we hear about is governments going broke and um, overtaxing and overborrowing and creating inflation. And we just don't hear about Singapore. And um, I don't know to what extent that's political, to what extent it would shed some light on the land, on the land rent, on the locational value, and how sharing it benefits society. And do the forces who now receive all that huge stream of spending, and they just not want it known? And they own the major media in America, they own the universities, they own the, uh, the Federal Reserve. So it's pretty easy for them to frown upon anybody looking at the stuff that interests you and I, and people just don't put their careers on the line and don't talk about it. And then our, our friends on the left will criticize everything and see nothing when it comes to land. But not just... I, I think it's because they're modern urban dwellers and land is becoming visible. Either environment for our side, or it's real estate for the other side, with, What you and I talk about, the flow of rent, the social surplus, the value of the location, the size of it, overwhelming, awesome size of it in the economy, how it drives the business cycle.
0: Uh, Jeff Smith, author of Perfect Timing, Uh, take us through the the incredible rise of the universal basic income and uh, the citizen's dividend. Uh, some within our community are uh, reticent to support this because it really infers an over-taxation of business, of uh, the land, uh, to generate this, uh, this basic income. Uh, where do you stand on that point?
1: Well, if, if we're going to have a tax, then, of course, it, the rate should be set so that it takes no more than the market value of a location. And, of course, that can be determined through auctioning off uh, vacant lots and extrapolating from that to the nearby lots to, to determine their value. It's, a, it's often worked out both on paper and reality. All these ideas we think of to some tiny degree takes place. So I, don't, I think there doesn't have to be any overtaxing in the least. You just have to look at, well, most of us, if we own land, it's the land under our homes. We're not familiar with downtown sites, for instance. And the downtown site can literally be 100 or 1,000 times more valuable, depending on the size of the city. And land under your home in the suburbs. And that's that's no exaggeration. But we're not familiar with, with the value of downtown. so we don't see what a gold mine they are what an oil spicer they are. And right now, just for a very small percentage of the population, I don't know if you remember the, the TV show *Seinfeld* and the character Wayne, but uh, she owned part of my hometown of Portland. And that was not atypical. That was very typical for 1%. They know where to go for a secure and steady and, and fat income stream. It's... um. The most valuable location. So, if we were getting that ourselves, that's that's one thing. The value of resources, especially oil, most of it, it's rental value, and that means the value of it as it would be before it's tapped in, in the ground. There's also the value of patents and copyrights. You give them away for free, practically, just a filing fee in the states. And companies like Intel and Microsoft, they get three and four thousand patents a year, not to use, but, but to prevent you from using them. So that um, that could change. charging the market value of those patents and copyrights, and we're, we're talking annually trillions of dollars. Root of the word "community," the modern part of that word in Latin means "share." So, when people share together, it creates a community identity, a feeling of belonging to each other. So, it's hugely important for creating community. And community is a contact in which ethics arises. People, when they know each other, treat each other differently than, than when they don't. And um, crime goes away. And, War goes away and racism goes away, and so on. So, sharing that purpose is huge on many fronts.
0: Well, Jeff Smith, author of Perfect Timing, a great way to end the interview there. Thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists.
1: <laughs> wow, thank you very much for asking me, Carl. I really enjoyed it. And I really miss Australia, don't it? I wish we had faster continental drift. Some guys would be closer and
0: we can see more of you. <laughs> yes. Well, hopefully we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll find a, an amazing benefactor sometime soon and we'll be able to get you back to Australia. But uh, fantastic, Jeff. Good luck with the book and good luck with the promotions. And, uh, yeah, fantastic work. Much for listening to the Renegade Economists. Get in touch via renegades at earthsharing.org.au. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au in the next 24 hours and always uh, keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter accounts at Earthsharing. My name is Carl Fitzgerald. Keep an eye on your wallets, keep an eye on the policy fraud, let's change this economic system.